Good morning, everyone. For those of you who are maybe joining us for the first time in these last few weeks, I've just realized I have never introduced myself to you or anyone who's joining us online, but my name is Stephen, and I'm privileged to serve as one of the leaders here, and it truly is a privilege, and one of the greatest privileges that I have is to regularly stand up and or stand up behind the camera and bring God's Word to His people. Now, last week, Craig brought us into a brand new series called If Jesus. If Jesus, and the whole idea behind the series is that there is a premise, and the premise is Jesus. And if this is true of Jesus, if this is true of who He is and what He has done, there is a natural therefore. If Jesus, therefore, something needs to change. Something needs to look different in our lives. Last week, we looked at our first therefore passage in the book of Hebrews. We are going to be spending the rest of the series looking at those therefore passages in the book of Hebrews. And Craig just challenged us that if this is true of Jesus and he, if he has done what he has accomplished, therefore, let us fix our thoughts on Jesus. Now, I wonder how many of you, I'm not looking for a show of hands, thought that it was a great encouragement. But I want to take it one step further. I wonder how many of you did something practical to help you fix your thoughts on Jesus more. Our response should never be, hey, Steve, high five for the message. Hey, Craig, well done. Our response should be, God has spoken. Now, what are we going to do if this, if Jesus, therefore, I challenged last week, fix our thoughts on Jesus. And so my prayer is that God really moves by His Spirit and through His Word in a powerful way to help us see and help us get the premise, the if Jesus part. And so when we transition into the therefore part, it just makes so much sense and we already have given God our yes. And so this week what we're going to be doing is we're going to be speaking, let me actually introduce it in this way. I want you, wherever you are, whether you're at home or whether you're sitting here this morning, to think about the last time you really messed up. Now, husbands and wives, no finger pointing here at this stage, because maybe you messed up this morning, all right? Maybe you messed up this weekend or this last week. Maybe you lost your cool. Maybe you said some things to your spouse or your children that you never, ever, ever thought was inside of you. Maybe you clicked on that website again. Maybe you just realized that pride or anger is taking control of you. So just think back to the last time you truly messed up. And as you kind of immerse yourself back into that experience, I want you to imagine in that moment when you are aware, ah, blown it. Do you feel more inclined to go to God or more inclined to run and hide and pretend everything is okay? And so today, the premise we're going to look at is if Jesus, and we're going to explain that in a second, Jesus is the best in the first place we should be going when we mess up. And that is such a practical, wonderful encouragement for us today. So we're going to dive in, book of Hebrews. If you've got one of these paper prehistoric Bibles, start at the back, turn backwards, you'll find the book of Hebrews. It's quite a big book. And we're going to be at the end of chapter four, otherwise... There's no shame in going to the contents and finding the book of Hebrews and diving in together. So let's read Hebrews 4, verses 14 onwards. 
And it starts off by saying this, therefore, now, as you have heard us say so many times from the stage here at Riverside Community Church is, whenever we see the word therefore, we need to wonder what it is there for. Now, I know that's kind of like pastor humor, and it's like ha-ha clunk, okay? It's like a cliche, but it really is true. And most often, that word forces us to go back, understand what this is built upon, why that word therefore is there, and then we go on. Now, just the way this particular section is set out, the therefore is actually kind of inherent in the following words and even rolling into chapter five. So we're not gonna go back. We're gonna actually just roll with the text and you will see this therefore come out so strongly. So therefore, since we have a great high priest, let's just pause there for a second. You know, I don't know if any of you have ever tried to read the book of Hebrews. I don't know if you've ever been reading through one of the year, the Bible in a year kind of plans and you got into the book of Hebrews and it's just like, it's quite overwhelming and it can often feel quite inaccessible. And there's a very good reason for that. I want to remind you that whenever you read the Bible, it doesn't matter which book we're reading, that book was not written to you. It may have been written for your benefits, But we are looking in on an ancient conversation between an author and a real group of people. In this particular case, the author of the book of Hebrews, theologians have been debating for centuries, who is this author? Uh, We don't know who it is. It, It may be Paul. It may be Barnabas. It may be Silas. But nonetheless, here it is. The author is writing to a very particular group of Christians. This group of Christians are a Jewish set of Christians coming out of a very thorough Jewish background and understanding. And so when this author is writing, he is really expecting this audience to know and understand Jewish culture and Jewish themes. And so what the writer is doing is he shines a light on these big Jewish, precious, nuanced, powerful themes that they hold so precious and then shows how Jesus is the true and better fulfillment of each of those themes. And so if we are to understand the book of Hebrews, we can't just say, oh, you know, I went to Sunday school and and we learned about Jonah and the whale and Moses parting the Red Sea. So I know the Old Testament. We need to understand that there's a layer of complexity and understanding that these people have that makes this, if Jesus part, so much more powerful. So what we need to work hard at is let's immerse ourselves into some of these premises, some of these rich Old Testament themes. So when the author goes, but then our F Jesus is the better and superior fulfillment of this, we should be going, oh wow, oh wow. So we're gonna do that. And the word that comes up here in this text is therefore, since we have a great high priest. Now, first of all, another thing you need to know about this audience is that this Group of Christians were being persecuted for their Christian faith. And so even in chapter 10, we see that many of them are being imprisoned for their faith. And so there is this movement that's starting to happen amongst these Christians to leave their Christian faith and go back to what they know. Now, if you're feeling that tension, if you're feeling like, I don't know if I'm getting out of Christianity what I wanted, Maybe your departure point isn't going to be to go back to Judaism like these people, but I think we can identify sometimes with this teaching. 
And so even when we look at, let's understand this concept of high priests and how Jesus is our superior high priest. Man, let's allow that to move us towards faithfulness to Jesus. Now, when we talk about this idea of a high priest, in Jewish culture, it's not like modern day culture where we've got a few hours of the week are my sacred hours. Those are my God hours. And the rest of my week are kind of given to so-called secular things, work and sleep and play. In Jewish culture, you cannot separate the history of Israel from the history of God's activity among them. You cannot separate an Old Testament Jew from the worship of God and the rituals of, of the feasts and what is happening at the temple. And so when we say this word high priest, it's not like some people who go to a church where they've got a inverted commas, a priest, and they see him once a year. This is a major theme a core understanding of these Jewish believers, this idea of a high priest. So now priests used to represent Israel to God. Priests used to represent Israel to God. Now, I know that sounds like, Stephen, I don't get it. It sounds like you're building up to something, but I'm really not getting it. Here's where I think we are falling short. In modern Western history, we Westerners are the most individualistic culture that has ever existed. Most cultures, and there's always good and bad in both sides, but most cultures on our planet right now and most human beings that have ever existed get their identity from their people, from their culture. Whereas our westernized culture, and again, there is some good in this, but it's all about you. It's all about your rights. It's all about you're awesome and you're wonderful. And so we go into church and a person like me stands up and says, God wants to have a relationship with you. And you're like, well, why wouldn't he? I'm awesome. Oh, we get to stand in the presence of God. And we're like, well, of course, right? It's my right. Now, when Paul's writing, well, whoever wrote Hebrews, he's writing to these guys that is not how they thought. This idea of the priesthood is rooted in the origins of their nation, especially after Moses, uh, God used Moses to bring them miraculously out of Egypt. Then he leads them to Mount Sinai. And I wanna challenge you during the course of this week, if you're struggling to connect with this theme, go read Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, God's people are surrounding this mountain and God says, I want to come and visit with my people. And it's not like, woohoo, Jesus is here. No, no, no. This, this presence of glory comes down and it is frightening and there's thunder and the ground is moving and God says, no one is to come on this mountain, not even an animal is to come on this mountain. And all the people are, no, no, it's cool. I'm not going near that mountain, Right? But God wanted to commune with his people. So he calls Moses and all the people are, listen, Moses, you're our guy. You're the one who gets to go up to that frightening place. You be our representative. See, now, I don't know if you've ever experienced God's full glory like that. And so for us, when we go, woohoo, I get to go straight into God's presence. I don't think we fully understand that. I think also we have a partially sanitized version of Jesus because we're Christians, meaning we have an understanding of God that is revealed to us through Jesus in the New Testament. 
But so many of us, again, maybe it's just me, we've got our view of Jesus shaped in my imagination by my children's storybooks. And I see like this picture of Jesus with babies and baby lambs all the time. And he's this happy guy. And I'm like, well, of course I can approach that guy. He looks awesome. What we need to realize is that he was awesome and he was very approachable. But after Jesus ascended and went back up to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, he was no longer Jesus of Nazareth as we picture him in our children's storybooks. He was the glorified second person of the Trinity, the glorified presence, the Son of God. And so when people saw the resurrected Jesus post the ascension, they weren't like, oh, it's Jesus. You know, Jesus, as again, we picture him with long flowing shampooed hair and lily white skin and perfectly white clothes. No, go read Revelation chapter one. John, who knew that Jesus, sees this figure with burning eyes, a face more radiant than the sun. He falls down dead, as if dead. Sorry, he doesn't fall down dead. And so my point is this. There is a heaviness and a weightiness and a glory to God's manifest presence that if we even partially understood that, that's why C.S. Lewis said, yes, God's a loving, wonderful, kind God, but he's not a tame God. And if we got that, I think we would understand our need, like those people back in Exodus 19, for someone to represent us. And so the priests used to represent Israel to God. Then the high priest, they would have a very specific function. Once a year, they would perform the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, where they would perform the sacrifice on behalf of the sins of Israel. Here's the problem. The priest himself was a flawed individual. So he would have to perform a ritualistic sacrifice for his own sins first, and then go into the Holy of Holies, first of all in the tabernacle, later on in the temple. The most kind of concentrated place of God's presence on the surface of the earth at that time. And it wasn't like, woohoo, I'm going to church today. No, this was a frightening experience. When he went in there, he had a rope tied to him with some bells. And if the bell stopped chiming, they knew that he had died and they would pull him out. This representative to take us and represent us in the glorious presence of God. And this verse is saying, we've got this high priest who has gone through the heavens. Our high priest, Jesus, didn't just go into a tent, didn't just go into a building. He went into the full, cosmic, unadulterated, manifest presence of God's glory representing you. Because we would not survive. And that is our high priest's. And while in the Old Testament, the high priest were flawed, Jesus is morally perfect. And while in the, high, in the Old Testament, the high priest were limited and there was only this one day of atonement, our high priest is eternally available. And so he is always, even right now, he is praying for us. He is representing us to God. So maybe you're saying, Stephen, wow, that's interesting. But I don't get what it means. Well, I'm so glad you asked. Let's read on verse 14. Let's read the whole thing. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, 
Jesus, the Son of God, just in case you didn't know who he was talking about, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Last week, Craig put out this challenge. He said, listen, if anyone wants to debunk Christianity, yes, you can talk about all sorts of topics, but at the center of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus. So if, if you pull on that thread and the resurrection of Jesus starts coming undone, the whole of our faith comes undone. So start there. But what this verse inadvertently does is highlight another place that skeptics and atheists tend to get very upset with us about. And that is what we call the exclusive claims of Christ, where Jesus says things like this that make us so uncomfortable. I am the way, not a way, I am the way, the truth and the life. And so atheists are saying, well, look at all these other wonderful religions. Look at all these, these other wonderful people. How dare you be so arrogant to claim that your way is the only way? And often this caricature of God is developed in our consciousness. It's like God's up there and he has all the world religions, but Christianity is his favorites. So everyone on Team Christian, well, well, you know, you know, they're gonna go to heaven, but everyone else. When the truth is this, God is not playing favorites. Jesus as our high priest is the only one qualified to be the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other religious leader. I don't care who you name and what they claim to have experienced in the name of God. There is no religious leader. There is no cult leader. There is no one in the world apart from Jesus who has entered the full manifest glory of God on your behalf. And so therefore, if Jesus, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so Paul says here, if that is true, then let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Again, if you're struggling with some things in your faith and you're just feeling yourself drift away, maybe like these people, it's not towards Judaism, but maybe it's towards something else. Maybe it's towards another religion or just plainly towards atheism or secularism. And the author is saying, but listen, if this is true, if Jesus is truly our high priest, then that becomes something we hold on to. And even when everything else is uncertain, and even when I'm doubting some of the other aspects of our faith, I get to hold on to that. That is my anchor point for my faith. So we're gonna read the next verse in a second. Verse 14, speaking to us about Jesus, our high priest. And if you want to, just go on ahead and read, read chapter five. It expands on that a bit more. So we don't have time for that this morning. But in verse 15, we're gonna see this humanity of Jesus, which is so important. Because again, another thought experiment. What comes to mind when I just say, picture a holy person? Just picture a holy person. Now what comes to my mind and I don't know where all this comes from, what comes to my mind when I hear the words, a holy person, the first picture I have in my mind is someone who may claim to spend hours a day praying and going away to spend time with God for days in a cave or whatever the case might be. But I picture someone who's detached from reality. It's not what a true holy person is according to the scriptures. It's what comes to my mind. Someone who's socially awkward, someone who's weird, someone who's condescending, someone who's self-righteous. 
But what we're going to see is when we see this human side of Jesus, our high priest, Jesus being our high priest doesn't make him less human. It makes him more human and more approachable. So let's see how that comes out in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, just as you are. Yet he was without sin. So we've got this high priest, but he's not this high and mighty high priest. Of course he's high and of course he's mighty, but not in the sense of high and mighty. Doesn't have his head in the clouds, looking down at us mere sinners and mortals. He has been tempted in every way. I know that is hard for some of you to think. Feels like it's dirtying your image of Jesus. But Jesus, our high priest, has been tempted in every way that you have. We're gonna get, we're gonna get to the yet what without sin part. Now, this word for tempted in Greek is, the word for tempted and tested is actually the same word. And so what translators need to do is they need to look at the context and try and understand is this word meant to more indicate temptation or a time of testing. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter which way you slice the pie, a temptation is a testing and every testing is a temptation. And so whether you're experiencing a temptation or a testing, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with you because he has been tempted and tested in every, in every way. This makes Jesus not less human, but more human. Think about this. Jesus had to resist anger when a camel cut him off in traffic. And when all the Jewish boys were looking at the nice Jewish girl, Jesus wasn't just like unfazed by that, just like quoting scripture. Jesus had to resist lust. And in case you think, but you've got no idea. I mean, our access to the, to the internet these days and, and the temptations I've faced, there's no way Jesus faced that in his nice Jewish culture 2,000 years ago. You need to remember, Jesus was tempted face to face by the devil himself for 40 days. We would not last for 40 nanoseconds. Tempted to shortcut himself to inherit all the kingdoms of the world without a cross and a suffering service. Man, oh man. We think, oh, Jesus is just like humming to himself and just like experiencing this without any struggle. It says he was tempted and yet he was without sin. See, Jesus is not like your buddy who you text them during the week and you say, listen, dude, I fell again. I, I went and clicked online and I looked at stuff I shouldn't have. And he's like, oh, yeah, me too. And you're both like, oh. So he identifies with you, but he's not taking you anywhere. See, Jesus enters your struggle and Jesus knows your struggle, but he also knows the victory. So Jesus can enter your struggle as much as you feel so unworthy in that moment. And whatever your struggle and your time of tempting or testing is, Jesus knows that and can sympathize and empathize with you in that moment. But he also knows the victory. And isn't that what we need? Our human God, high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. The last verse for us this morning 
It's, it's a bit of a mini therefore. Let us then, let us therefore, let us then, in light of this truth, approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So I don't know what your time of need is right now. You're testing or you're tempting. Maybe finances are just rough at the moment. And so that's the testing, but the temptation is to lose faith. The temptation is just to get angry. The temptation is to abandon what you, what, what you perceive to be your faith. Maybe your time of testing is, man, your anger is just getting the better of you or your pride is just getting the better of you or your lust is just getting the better of you. But you would know what your place of testing and temptation is, your time of need. And as I asked you in the beginning, in those moments, are you more inclined to run towards God graciously? And I will wager a year's salary that 99.999% of us in that moment God is the last person we want to see then. When we become aware of our failure, we do what Adam did. We hide, we cover up, we pretend that everything's okay, but we don't want to be in God's presence. And if I can be real with you, I know exactly what that feels like. I mean, if, I had, if I've had a good week, a good week, regular devotions, engaging with the spirits of God, and I'm amazing life group. Nothing's going wrong. Nothing's challenging me in that week. Didn't kick the dog, all right, or the cat in my case. Um, no fights with the spouse, right? I get to church on a Sunday morning, band starts playing, and I'm like, woohoo, praise Jesus. But if I, I've had a week of testing or tempting, and I'm standing here on a Sunday morning, aware of my weakness and my failure, the last place I feel like being is right there or being in the presence of God. It's the very thing I need. We're gonna find out about that in a second. But I start to believe this truth that it's better for me not to be in the presence of God. And I think part of that is this false belief that when I let people down, they express their disappointment to me and then God's gonna be like them. So I let my parents down. I let my kids down. I let my spouse down. And again, the people that we let down around us are also imperfect. So they don't always respond like Jesus. And so they express their pain. They express their hurt. They express their anger. They express their disappointments. And if it happens regularly, we may even break down that relationship completely. And then we put that onto God. And we say, oh man, Look at where I'm at right now. Look at my place of weakness. Surely God is so disappointed in me right now. Surely God's gonna do to me what everyone else has done to me. And yet this verse says, let us then in light of this high priest who represents us to this glorious God, who sympathizes with us in our weakness and yet has not sinned. He knows our struggle and he knows our victory. Because of that, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. With confidence. At the time where we're feeling least worthy, most aware of our weaknesses and our failures. In those moments, 
where we feel like God's presence would consume me, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Yeah, but Stephen, if, if I did that, if I did that every time in my point of weakness, whether it was simply a time of temptation or testing or whether I crossed the line and failed again or fell again, if I came to the throne of grace every single time, I may as well get a season ticket because I'd be there all the time. And again, that exposes a false idea we have about how we are to relate to this God. And the false idea, maybe it's just me, goes something like this. Sure, I went to the throne of grace and received mercy three days ago, and I'm in a place of need again, but no, 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 I don't think it's right for me to go back quite yet. So I'm going to handle this on my own. Now, where does that go every single time? We somehow believe that if I am less dependent on God, I am a better person. And the reality is that a better person isn't being developed by me somehow becoming less dependent on God's grace, but rather by becoming more dependent upon God's grace. I believe with 110% of my being that real transformation isn't being less dependent on coming into God's presence in a place of need, but rather recognizing at the first sense of awareness that I'm in a place of weakness and need to run to the throne of grace with confidence, knowing I'm going to get grace and mercy every single time. Because what starts happening is in me, my flesh, my sinful nature says, I don't deserve this. And there's something in me that comes in bowing and scraping and then God says, but we've got a high priest. And no, in some ways you don't deserve this. But my son took that on himself for you. And now you, instead of coming to me to receive punishments and the stick, you get to stand in my presence with confidence, with you 100% aware that there's nothing in you that deserves that space. God says, stand, son, daughter, stand and receive from me again. You see, here are the things about God's grace. It is infinite. And again, when it comes to other people, maybe we get used to this idea that people run out of their ability to help me. And yes, there's such a thing as compassion fatigue. Yes, I and you are limited in our ability to help people. We have our own issues as well. And so we get used to somehow there being a finite resource of grace in others who are even kindly towards us. So therefore God's the same. No, no, no. Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You can never exhaust God's grace. And so real transformation is if it means a hundred times a day, recognizing a point of need and weakness and going into the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace every single time. That is what transforms us. Dallas Willard, he says, the greatest saints are not those who need less grace, but those who consume the most grace, who indeed are most in need of grace, those who are saturated by grace in every dimension of their being, grace to them is like breath.
fast forward to your next moment of weakness and failure and falling and need. This is something you need to hold on to because your emotions are gonna lie to you. They're gonna tell you you do not deserve to be here. Therefore, hide, run, distract yourself, pretend that everything's okay. But engrave this into your consciousness. Force yourself, I'm gonna come and find grace. Allow that moment and that act to transform how you see God and be transformed in that moment. And now, Sam, if you'd come up. I want to end with a story. About two years ago, just under two years ago, sorry, just over two years ago, Bianca and I were privileged to be on a bit of a sabbatical. We went and spent some time with some ministries in the United States. And at the end of our time, we had... Um, a night and a day in New York. And so we didn't have much time, so we did the typical New York thing, which is to get on one of those red buses and do the downtown tour. So we're doing the downtown tour and we get to Madison Square Gardens. Now, all of you people who love all your bands and your musos, you all know Madison Square Gardens. It's where all the big bands have performed, all the big acts have performed. And so the tour guide says, here's Madison Square Gardens. And he just starts naming these bands and these artists that have performed there. It's like, wow, in New York, you know. He said, let me tell you an interesting story about Billy Joel. Now, if you're under 30, you don't know who Billy Joel is. Ask your parents. The piano man. So he had a bunch of nights booked out at Madison Square Gardens. For the first three, four nights, he looks out to his audience and he sees that the first three, four rows are just booked out with rich suits. See, there'd be these corporate bookings. These companies would book out those first few rows and just send their top people. And yes, they're having a jaw. Yes, they're having a lack of time, but they were not his true fans. His true fans were in the back because they couldn't afford to be in the front. I went and checked this out. This is true. Billy Joel, what he would do, he would, he would book out the first four rows and he would give those tickets to his true fans. Maybe you are so acquainted with your limitations and your weaknesses and your failings that in your imagination, I only deserve to be in row 365 from the presence of God. And God says, listen, I've booked out the front rows. You could never afford the front rows of being in my presence. But I want you to stand up and walk to the front with confidence, knowing you're not gonna be shunned and shamed, but you're gonna receive glorious grace and mercy. And so I wanna give us time to respond to this. So if we can pray, and even if you are there at home, take this moment seriously. Let us engage with God. So let us just spend a few moments. Think back one more time to your most recent moment of shame, of weakness, of failure. Just become conscious of how you viewed God in that time if he was even conscious to you at all. I want you to take a moment to recalibrate 
who God is to you in that moment, according to these truths. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted and tested the way you were in that moment. And yet he was without sin, but in that moment, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Become that person who consumes grace, who breathes grace, who declares your need for God's grace for every living second of your day. But you don't have to beg for it. You don't have to earn it. Your high priests represented you to the Father so that you can receive it in abundance free. I don't care how great your need is, how great your failure is, how many times you have failed or fallen, God's grace is greater. I promise you, I don't care what it is, God's grace is greater. Maybe you want to respond either internally or even take a moment to respond physically. Not that anything magic happens, but I think there's something powerful about responding with our whole selves and not just kind of our inward selves. But maybe you want to say, God, I'm going to stand with confidence. Nothing in me feels like I'm worthy of that, but I choose to do it. So maybe you actually want to physically stand here this morning as an act of faith, of trusting God. Jesus, your high priest, I want to stand with confidence. Jesus, we don't fully understand how you identify with every standing person here this morning. And yet you do at levels that would blow our minds. Father God, I thank you for this act of faith to stand when we feel like we can't. That we're not trusting our feelings or our shame, we're trusting you our high priest, Jesus. So Father, right now, as we, by your Spirit, get to stand in the throne of grace, this cosmic reality, we don't fully understand that we are in your presence right now. God, I pray that grace and mercy would flow from your throne. We know that to be true. We don't even have to ask it. We know it happens. So thank you, God for your endless supply of grace, for your endless supply of mercy. Father, we know that it is your kindness that brings about repentance. So Father God, as we start to see you as the gracious loving God in light of my failure, may we turn to you May we hold firmly to you. May we stand with a new conviction as we've experienced your love and your grace this morning, wherever we are. Holy Spirit, I pray that this is so much more than a nice idea and a passing emotion. I pray that there's a divine transaction happening right now. Grace 
flowing from the throne of heaven. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Just in your own time, receive that. Thank you, Lord. I receive that grace. Thank you, Lord. Maybe I'm feeling what you're doing right now. Maybe I'm unaware of what you're doing right now. But I thank you for the grace you are pouring into my life right now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being our high priest, Jesus. Thank you that we get to walk planet Earth with confidence. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this, Lord, in your mighty and glorious name. Amen.